0: Section Seven of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter Four. Ten Years of the Reign of the Citizen King. Besides the affairs of the Duchesse de Berry, of Louis Napoleon, of Fieschi and his infernal machine, and difficulties attending on the marriage of the Duc d'Orleans, the first ten years of Louis Philippe's reign were full of vicissitudes. France after a revolution is always a quote, unquiet sea that cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and dirt end quote. Frenchmen do not accept the inevitable as Americans have learned to do through the working of their institutions one of the early troubles of Louis-Philippe was the peremptory demand of President Jackson for five million dollars a claim for French spoliations in seventeen ninety seven this amount had been acknowledged by the government of Louis-Philippe to be due but the chambers were not willing to ratify the agreement. In the course of the negotiations, the secretary of General Jackson, having occasion to translate to him a French dispatch, read, quote, the French government demands, quote, demands, cried the general, with a volley of rough language, if the French government dares to demand anything of the United States, it will not get it, quote. It was long before he could be made to understand the true meaning of the French word demand, and his own demands were backed with threats, and couched in terms more forcible than diplomatic. The money was paid after the draft of the United States for the first installment had been protested, and France has not yet forgotten that when she was still in the troubled waters of a recent revolution, she was roughly treated by the nation which she had befriended at its birth. The greatest military success in Louis-Philippe's reign was the capture of Constantine in Algeria. So late as 1810, Algerian corsairs were a terror in the Mediterranean, and captured m arago who was employed on a scientific expedition in eighteen thirty five france resolved to undertake a crusade against these pirates which might free the commerce of the mediterranean the enterprise was not popular in france it would cost money and it seemed to present no material advantages it was argued that its benefits would accrue only to the dynasty of louis philippe that algeria would be a good training school for the army and that the main duty of the army in future might be to repress republicanism in eighteen thirty four a young arab chief called abdul-kader the son of a marabout of great sanctity had risen into notice abdul-kader was a man who realized the picture of saladin drawn by sir walter scott in the talisman brave honorable chivalrous and patriotic his enemies admired him his followers adored him when he made his first treaty with the french he answered some doubts that were expressed concerning his sincerity by saying gravely quote, my word is sacred i have visited the tomb of the prophet constantine the mountain fortress of oran was held not by abdul kader but by ahmed bey the representative of the sultan's suzerainty in the barbary states the first attack upon it failed the weather and the elements fought against the french in this expedition General Changarnier distinguished himself in their retreat, and the Duc de Nemours showed endurance and bravery. From the moment of that repulse, popular enthusiasm was aroused. A cry rang through France that Constantine must be taken. It was captured two years later, after a siege in which two French commanders-in-chief and many generals were killed. Walls fell, and mines exploded. The place at last was carried by assault. At one moment, when even French soldiers wavered, a legion of foreign daredevils, chiefly irishmen and englishmen were roused by an english hurrah from the man who became afterwards marshal st arnaud with echoing cheers they followed him up the breach the army followed after them and the city was won louis philippe had been raised to power by four great men lafayette lafitte talleyrand and thiers of these lafitte and lafayette retained little influence in his councils and both died early in his reign in eighteen thirty eight died talleyrand, the prince of the old diplomatists the king and his sister madame adelaide visited him upon his deathbed talleyrand supported by his secretary sat up to receive the king he was wrapped in a warm dressing gown with the white curls he had always cherished flowing over his shoulders while the king sat near him dressed in his claret-coloured coat brown wig and varnished boots someone who was present whispered that it was an interview between the last of the ancienne noblesse and the first citizen bourgeois Rut, the old courtier, was touched by the intended kindness, and when the king was about to go away, he said, half rising, "Sire, this honour to my house will be gratefully remembered in the annals of my family." End quote. Deep and true was the grief felt for the loss of Talleyrand in his own household. Many and bitter have been the things said of his character and his career. He himself summed up his life in some words written shortly before his death, which read like another verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. Quote, Eighty-three years have rolled away. How many cares, how many anxieties, how many hatreds have I inspired, how many exasperating complications have I known. And all this with no other result than great moral and physical exhaustion, and a deep feeling of discouragement as to what may happen in the future. Disgust, too, as I think over the past." A writer in Temple Bar, probably Dr. Javon, speaks of Prince Talleyrand thus, on his private life it would be unfair to pass judgment without taking into consideration the turbulence and lawlessness, the immorality and corruption both social and political, which characterized the stormy epoch in which he was called to play a very prominent part. If he did not pass through it blameless, he was less guilty than many others. If his hands were not pure, at least they were not blood-stained. And it is possible that, as Bourrienne, who knew him well, says, History will speak as favourably of him as his contemporaries have spoken ill." The summer of 1840 seemed peaceful and serene, when a storm burst suddenly out of a cloudless sky. It was a new phase of that Eastern question which unhappily was not settled in the days of the Crusades, but has survived to be a disturbing element in the nineteenth century. Two men were engaged in a fierce struggle in the East, and as usual they drew the powers of the West and North into their quarrel. Sultan Mahmud, who had come to the throne in 1808, had done his best to destroy the power of his pashas. He hated such powerful and insubordinate nobles, and after the destruction of the Mamelukes in 1811, he placed Egypt under the rule of the bold Macedonian soldier Mehemet Ali, not as a pasha, but as viceroy. In course of time, as the dominions of Sultan Mahmud became more and more disorganized by misgovernment and insurrection, Mehmed Ali sent his adopted son, Ibrahim Pasha, with an army into Syria. Ibrahim conquered that province and governed it far better than the Turks had done, when he was stopped by a Russian army, 1832, which, under pretense of assisting the Sultan, interfered in the quarrel. An arrangement was effected by what is called the Treaty of Unkiar-Talesi. Ibrahim was to retain the Pasha'lik of Syria for his life, and Russia stipulated that no vessels of war should be allowed to pass the Dardanelles or Hellespont without the consent of the Sultan. Mohammed Ali, who was anxious above all things to have his viceroyalty in Egypt made hereditary, that he might transmit his honours to his brave son, cast about in every direction to find friends among European diplomatists. Six years before, he had proposed to England, France, and Austria a partition of the Sultan's empire. Russia, he said, is half-mistress of Turkey already. She has established a protectorate over half its subjects, who are Greek Christians, and where she professes to protect, she opposes instead. If she seizes Constantinople, there is the end of your European civilization. I am a Turk, but I propose to you to inaugurate a crusade which will save Turkey and save Europe. I will raise my standard against the Tsar. I will put at your disposal my army, fleet, and treasure. I will lead the van, and in return I ask only my independence of the port." and an acknowledgment of me as an hereditary sovereign.'" Quote. This proposition was promptly declined. It was renewed in 1838 in a modified form, but again England, France, and Austria would not listen to the viceroy's reasoning. Mehmed Ali became a prey to despair. Sultan Mahmud, meantime, was no less a victim to resentment and anxiety. He hated his enforced subservience to Russia, and above all he hated his great subject and rival, Mehemet Ali. With fury in his heart he watched how, shred by shred, his great empire was wrenched away from him. Greece, Syria, Servia, Algiers, Moldavia, and Wallachia. Little remained to him but Constantinople and its surrounding provinces. Russia, all-powerful in the Black Sea, could at any moment force him to give up to her the key of the Dardanelles. Among the Turks, the only part of his subjects on whom he could rely, were many malcontents, Fanatic dervishes predicted his overthrow, and called him the Gayur Sultan. He had destroyed Turkish customs, outraged Turkish feelings, and by the massacre of the Janissaries, in 1826, he had sapped Turkish strength. He now began in his own person to set at naught the precepts of the Koran. All day he worked with frenzy, and at night he indulged himself in frightful orgies, till, dead drunk, he desisted from his madness, and was carried by his slaves to his bed. In the early months of 1839 Mahmoud made quiet preparations to thrust Ibrahim Pasha out of Syria, and in June a great battle was fought between the Egyptians and the Turks on the banks of the Euphrates, in which Ibrahim Pasha, by superior generalship, wholly defeated the Turkish commander, Hafiz Pasha. Sultan Mahmoud never heard of this disaster. He died in delirium tremens the very week that it took place, and his son, Abdul Majid, mounted his throne. Ibrahim Pasha, immediately after his victory, had made ready to threaten Constantinople, when dispatches from his father arrested him. Mehemet wrote that France had promised to take the part of Egypt, and to settle all her difficulties by diplomacy. Meantime, the new Sultan, or his Vizier, having offended the Capitan Pasha, or Admiral of the fleet, that officer thought proper to carry the ships under his command over to Mehemet Ali. It was a proud day for the Viceroy when the Turkish ship sailed into the harbor of Alexandria, this defection of the fleet so discouraged Abdulmejid that he offered his vassal terms of peace, by which he consented to Mehemet's hereditary viceroyalty in Egypt and Ibrahim Pasha's hereditary possession of the Pashalik of Syria. But the great powers would not consent to this dismemberment of the Turkish Empire. A fierce struggle in diplomacy took place between France and England, which might have resulted in an open rupture had not Louis-Philippe and Marshal Sou, then Minister for Foreign Affairs in France, been both averse to war. The old marshal had seen more than enough of it, and Louis Philippe felt that peace alone could strengthen his party, the bourgeoisie. Mehemet Ali, his rights and his wrongs, seemed to have been entirely overlooked in the tempest of diplomacy. After some weeks of great excitement the five great powers agreed among themselves that Mehemet Ali should become the Khedive, or hereditary viceroy, of Egypt, but that he must give up Syria to this he demurred and the allied troops attacked ibrahim Pasha. admiral sir charles napier bombarded his stronghold st jean d'acre and forced him into submission the triumph of lord palmerston's policy was complete as charles greville remarked everything has turned out well for him he is justified by the success of his operations and by the revelations in the french chambers of the intentions of m thiers and it must be acknowledged he has a fair right to plume himself on his diplomacy after the death of talleyrand only m thiers remained of the four great men who had assisted louis philippe to attain supreme power m thiers was not insensible to the advantage it would be to his history of the consulate and empire if he could add to it a last and brilliant chapter describing the restoration to france of the mortal remains of her great emperor therefore in the early part of eighteen forty before any disturbance of the entente cordiale he made a request to the english government for the body of napoleon then lying beneath the willow-tree at longwood on a desolate island that hardly seemed to be part of the civilized world lord palmerston responded very cordially and louis Philippe's third son the prince de Joinville, in his frigate the belle poule attended by other french warships was dispatched upon the errand napoleon had died may five eighteen twenty one for almost twenty years his body had reposed at st helena with the prince de Joinville went bertrand and gorgo who had been the emperor's companions in captivity The coffin was raised and opened. The face was perfect. The beard, which had been shaved before the burial, had apparently a week's growth. The white satin which had lined the lid of the coffin had crumbled into dust, and lay like a mist over the body, which was dressed in a green uniform with a cocked hat across its knees. The corpse was transferred to another coffin brought from France, and was carried over the rough rocks of St. Helena by English soldiers." All the honours that in that remote island England could give to her former captive were respectfully offered, and early in December 1840 news arrived in Paris that the Belle Poule had reached Havre. This was sooner than her arrival had been looked for, and at once all Paris was in a scramble of preparation. Labourers and artists worked night and day. The weather was piercingly cold. Indeed, no less than three hundred English were said to have died of colds contracted on the day of the funeral procession. The body was landed at Courbevoie from a flat-bottomed barge that had been constructed to bring it up the Seine. Courbevoie is about two miles from the Arc de Triomphe, which is again nearly the same distance from the Place de la Concorde. Between each gilded lamp-post, with its double burners, and beneath long rows of leafless trees, were colossal plaster statues of victory, alternating with colossal vases burning incense by day, and inflammable materials for illumination by night. Thus the procession attending the body had about five miles to march from the place of disembarkation to the Invalides on the left bank of the Seine. The spectators began to assemble before dawn. All along the route scaffoldings had been erected containing rows upon rows of seats. All the trees, bare and leafless at that season, were filled with freezing gamins. All the wide pavements were occupied. Before long rows of national guards fringed the whole avenue. They were to fall in behind the procession as it passed, and accompany it to the Invalides. The arrival of the funeral barge had been retarded while the authorities hastened the preparations for its reception. When the body of Napoleon was about to re-land on French soil, cannon to right of it, cannon to left of it, volleyed and thundered. The coffin was received beneath what was called a votive monument, a column one hundred feet in height, with an immense gilded globe upon the top, surmounted by a gilded eagle twenty feet high. Banners and tripods were there ad libitum, and a vast plaster bas-relief cast in the belle poule's honour. The coffin, having been landed, was placed upon a catafalque, the cannon gave the signal to begin the march, and the procession started. The public was given to understand that in a sort of funeral casket blazing with gold and purple on the top of the catafalque, twenty feet from the ground, was enclosed the coffin of the emperor, but it was not so the sailors of the belle poule protested that the catafalque was too frail and the height too great they dared not they said attempt to get the lead-lined coffin up to the place assigned for it still less try to get it down again it was consequently deposited for fear of accident on a low platform between the wheels first came the gendarmes or mounted police with glittering brazen breastplates waving horsehair crests fine horses and a band of trumpeters then the mounted garde municipale, then lancers then the lieutenant-general commanding the national guard of paris surrounded by his staff and all officers of whatever grade then on leave in the capital these were followed by infantry cavalry sappers and miners lancers and cuirassiers staff officers etc with bands and banners then came the carriage containing the chaplain who had had charge of the body from the time it left st helena following whom were a crowd of military and naval officers next appeared a lead charger son of a stallion ridden by napoleon and soon after came a bevy of the marshals of france then all the banners of the eighty-six departments and at last the funeral catafalque. as it passed under the arc de triomphe erected by napoleon in commemoration of his victories there were hundreds in the crowd who expected to see the emperor come to life again strange to say the universal cry was vive l'empereur one heard nowhere vive le roi the funeral-car was hung with purple gauze, embroidered with golden bees. As I said, the coffin of the Emperor was suffered to repose upon a gilded buckler supported by four golden caryatids. But it was, as the sailors would have said, quote, stowed safely in the hold. Quote. The catafalque was hung all over with wreaths, emblems, and banners. It had solid gilded wheels, and was drawn by eight horses covered with green velvet, embroidered with gold bees. Each horse was led by a groom in the Bonaparte livery. At the four corners of the car, holding the tassels of the pall, rode two marshals, an admiral and General Bertrand, who had shared the captivity of the Emperor. Count Montolon was not suffered to leave his imprisonment for the occasion, though he also had been a companion of the Emperor at St. Helena. Around the catafalque marched the five hundred sailors of the Belle-Poule, headed by their captain, the Prince de Joinville, slender, tall and dark, a very naval-looking man. He was supposed to be intensely hostile to England, and only to be kept in check by a strong hand. Then came all the emperors aides de camp who were still living, and all the aged veterans in Paris who had served under him. This was the most touching feature of the procession. Many tears were shed by the spectators, and a thrill ran through the hearts of eight hundred thousand people as the catafalque creaked onward, passing under the arch which celebrated Napoleon's triumphs, and beneath which, at other times, no carriage was allowed to pass but enthusiasm rose to the highest point at the sight of the veterans in every kind of faded uniform. Grenadiers of the guard, chasseurs, dragoons of the empress, red lancers, mamelukes, poles, and, above all, the old guard. Vive la vieille garde! shouted the multitude. Vive les Polonais! Vive l'empereur! The funeral was a political blunder. It stirred up the embers of Napoleonism. Ten years later they blazed into a consuming fire. The procession passed through the Place de la Concorde, beneath the shadow of the Obelisk of Luxor, which of old had looked on triumphs and funeral processions in Egypt. Then it crossed the Seine. On the bridge were eight colossal statues representing prudence, strength, justice, war, agriculture, art, commerce, and eloquence. The statues along the Champs-Élysées were victories, each inscribed with the name of some Napoleonic battle. Great haste had been required to get them ready at the last moment government had had to order from certain manufactories pairs of wings by the dozen and bucklers and spears in the same way all night the artists had been fixing these emblems on their statues a statue of marshal Ney, which had been ordered among those of the other marshals was found to be not of colossal but of life-size it had to be hurriedly cut into three parts the deficiency in the torso was concealed by flags and the bravest of the brave took his place on a par with his comrades On the steps of the Chamber of Deputies was a colossal statue of immortality, designed for the top of the Pantheon, but pressed into service on this occasion, holding forth a gilded crown as if about to place it on the coffin of the Emperor. At the gate of the Invalides was another genuine statue. Napoleon, in his imperial robes, was holding forth the cordon of the Legion of Honor. This statue had been executed for the pillar at Boulogne, commemorative of the Army of England. It was surrounded by plaster statues of the Departments of France, and was approached through a long line of marshals, statesmen, and the most illustrious of French kings, among them Louis the Fourteenth, who would have been much astonished to find himself rendering homage to a soldier of barely gentlemanly birth, born on an island which was not French in his time. The coffin was borne by sailors into the chapelle ardente at the Invalides. "'Sire,' said Prince de Joinville to his father, "'I present to you the body of the Emperor Napoleon.' "'I receive it in the name of France,' replied the king." Then Marshal Sou put the emperor's sword into the king's hand. General Bertrand said, "The king, I charge you to lay it on the coffin of the emperor." General Gourgaud placed the emperor's hat also on the coffin. Then began the appropriate religious ceremonies, and during the following week, the public were admitted to view the coffin as it lay in state in the Chapelle ardente. The crowd was very great; women fainted daily, and many were almost pressed to death against the gilded rails. After all, there was little to see. The coffin was enclosed in a sort of immense cage to keep it from intrusion, the air was heavy with incense, and the light was too dimly religious to show anything with distinctness. A splendid tomb has since been erected to Napoleon in the chapel of the Invalides, where he rests under the care of war-worn soldiers of France. Few now can be living who fought under him. Not a Bonaparte was at his funeral. The only one then upon French soil was in a prison." Napoléon sleeps where, in his will, he prayed that his remains might rest, on the banks of the Seine. End of chapter 4. End of section 7.